0: In 1532, when the Spanish conquest of the of the Inca Empire began, and Atahualpa was the last free uh, Sapa Inca. This was the term that the Inca used to describe their leader. Roughly translates Sapa Inca roughly translates to unique Inca or only Inca. Um, uh, after his capture and his death, uh, the Inca Empire fell apart relatively quickly. And I mean, before this, it was a grand and and mighty realm, incredibly rich. And while it lacked some uh, you know technological developments, it was still very advanced when it came to things like architecture and construction. As for uh, Atahualpa himself, he had to fight a civil war for his throne against his brother. Uh, but uh, after winning that civil war, he didn't have too much, to, uh, too much time to enjoy uh, over the victory before the, uh, before the Spanish arrived, led by a bloke named Francisco Pizarro. And uh, Pizarro was nothing but bad news for the Inca Empire. I tell you what, and his uh, his arrival was was be- the beginning of the end for them. But we'll get across all of that and exactly what happened uh, as well as the at the at the massacre of Cajamarca, and of course uh, its consequences too. So, lots to talk about today, as ever. Let's not waste time. Let's jump straight into it. Here we go with the story of Atahualpa and his undoing at the massacre of Cajamarca. Let's get to it. So, we're going all all the way back. You're going all the way back. To around 1502, this is when uh, Atahualpa was born to the Sapa Inca at the time, uh, Huayna Capac. Now, this bloke, I'll tell you what, he was a busy bee because Atahualpa was one of his 200 children. Very busy bloke indeed, it seems. As a result, we don't even know the name of Atahualpa's mum. Huayna was having it away with that many different women that we don't know which one it was that gave birth to uh, Atahualpa. But anyway... Huayna he's the uh, he's the emperor of the inca, he's the uh, the emperor of the of the incas the inca empire he's um, known the which was known to the incas themselves as uh, as a, as Tawantinsuyu or the realm of the four parts and i want to tell you a little bit about this empire actually before we get on with the story of Atahualpa at the turn of the 16th century absolutely massive realm it was huge been around for a long time spanned much of the western coast of the south american continent um, following the coastline from modern all the way up northern modern day colombia right down to about halfway down modern Chile, right, between the ocean and the Andes. It was along this – there was was a coastal empire here. It did spread inland a fair way into uh, into modern-day Argentina and and Bolivia. So uh, a big bloody empire then, in in short. And uh, under uh, uh, Atahualpa's dad, it uh, it was just about to hit its absolute peak in terms of size and power as well. That would come just very shortly after his death. And it was centred on the city of uh, its capital city, Cusco, right? And uh, obviously, throughout its its history, it expanded from from that central point uh, through both diplomacy and conquest. And still, you know, even today, one of the most notable uh, and powerful empires in human history. And that fact is all the more impressive when you consider that the Incas never had some pretty key pieces of technology that were available in other parts of the world, things like the wheel, things like draft animals, they never used money, really. They didn't have access to iron or steel, and most critically, they never had a, a system of writing. So pretty impressive, then, that the Inca Empire you know, had built advanced road networks, huge monumental buildings like Machu Picchu, ruled over tens of millions of people, Um, off the back of the technologies that they did have access to. Uh, They relied on a centrally planned economy that was uh, based around barter and corvée labour. State provided assistance in times of hardship. So, you know, there's, again, a a quite advanced political system in some respects. Um, And this was overseen by a a hierarchical government, had priests, ministers, councillors, an organised bureaucracy, all that sort of stuff. Uh, and a powerful military to go with it as well, as you would expect. Any any powerful, uh, you know, large empire is going to have a, a sizable army, and the Incas certainly had that. Although, again, they didn't have iron or steel weapons, so they mostly relied when it, come, when it came to uh, winning battles on sheer force of numbers rather than, you know, uh, weapon-based superiority. They used stone or obsidian axes, uh, spears, slings, that sort of thing as well. But they, as I say, they didn't have iron or steel. Um, and uh what they did in terms uh, even even without writing, they had a, a pretty advanced record keeping system uh, called Kipu that utilized knotted strings, although today we've lost lost much of the ability to decode um uh, these records. There's a lot of them that are still kicking about these strings and and, and the knots that are in them, that sort of stuff. And we know that they you know they did everything from census to uh, you know recording, uh the the movement of goods and and all that sort of stuff like that but we we just we don't broadly speaking have have a way to translate that these days which is a great shame a great shame that uh, you know a lot of that knowledge is is currently locked away anyway long story short Inca empire powerful expansive ruled over millions and millions of people and at the time of Atahualpa's birth the bloke in charge of the whole thing is his dad Huayna now we don't know too much about Atahualpa's upbringing Uh, He only really starts to enter the history books at around the time of Heiner's death in the 1520s. And Heiner's death is a notable one because he was one of the uh, sort of most uh, prominent political figures to die in in the Americas of smallpox. He was... uh, you know as an emperor dying to this deadly disease that europeans brought with them as they crossed the atlantic was it was it was a big deal um you know when europeans made contact with the americas they brought smallpox typhus all sorts of other stuff with them and it killed millions and millions of people millions of people lost their lives uh those native to the americas had no natural immunity to these to these ailments and of course inoculation is still miles away we'll hear all about that in episode 87 get across that but once Huana died unfortunately um, it actually wasn't Atahualpa who took the throne. It was one of his very many brothers, right? Um, uh, he had plenty of them, don't forget. Uh, it was a bloke named Huasca, right? Now, Huasca was considered by many leading Incas to be a great pick as the heir of um, of Huayna. Uh, and indeed, not everyone agrees on this, but there are some indications that Huayna may have even uh, picked Huascar uh, as his heir although again that's that's up in the air that that's not actually 100% agreed upon but whatever the case huasca certainly seen as a front runner and uh, the reason for this right uh, out of all the sons that huana had the reason that Huascar is one of the favorites is because his mum was a woman named chincha oklo right and chincha oklo happened to be huana's sister Oh yes, they were all about it. Got to keep that bloodline pure. Huasca, being the product of incest uh, between a brother and a sister, was actually seen as a good thing uh, here. So this was uh, this was something that sort of propelled him uh, to prominence when it came to seizing the the or well, not not really seizing at this point, but just succeeding Hwyner, uh and taking the throne after he died. But as you might have already guessed. This didn't go down too well with our mate Atahualpa. He wanted the throne for himself. And uh, this disagreement between these two brothers ultimately triggered what we call today the Inca Civil War, or as it's sometimes known, the War of the Two Brothers. Now... Both raised the armies that they commanded. Uh, broadly speaking, Huasca uh, had a lot of the support of the bureaucracy and the nobles, whereas uh, Atahualpa, who had been a regional governor, he'd been up in Quito. Uh, he had a fair whack of the military behind him. So it was a pretty even fight between the two brothers. And as a result, as we move into the 1530s. They fought a string of battles against one another as they, uh, you know, as they attempted to contest supremacy of the, over the uh, uh, the Inca Empire. And, you know, these this war, this you know, these battles they were they were hard fought. It was a bloody war. But as time went on, Atahualpa he did gain the upper hand. He did have the backing of the la- a large section of the military, and eventually, again after many years, he managed to defeat his brother. So Atahualpa, uh, at, at the end of it, his armies uh, they they captured Cusco. They also took Huasca prisoner, they captured him as well, uh, and, and as a result, Atahualpa was able to seize power as the lone, uncontested Sapa Inca in 1532. Now, as any you know, newly ordained, self-respecting emperor would to, uh, Atahualpa immediately moved uh, to consolidate his position of power over the Inca Empire. Uh, he killed a bunch of people who were known to be very loyal to Huasca or high profiles followers, supporters of him, uh, as well as, just in case, a bunch of historians as well that he thought might not tell the story of the Civil War in a way that was favourable to him. So a bunch of uh, historians also met a very grisly end uh, because, <laughs> because obviously Atahualpa was hoping that the, st- the, the history books would be kind to him. And uh, then, began to get ready uh, to get on with the business of being emperor, which obviously had more than a few little perks. Let me tell you, I want to tell you about the position of Inca empire. I kind of glossed over it before. I talked about the government hierarchy, the priests, the ministers, whatever else, but standing paramount, a supreme over all of them was the Sapa Inca. Because this bloke, i tell you what, whoever he was at this point, I'll tell you, I'll tell you this, he was a very bloody big deal. The, Incans, the Incas believed that the Sapa Inca was the descendant of the sun god Inti, And uh, he was treated as a god, as such, basically. He'd go around in rich jewelry, drinking out of golden cups, wearing clothes and shoes, richly decorated with silver and all sorts of stuff, carried around everyone a golden litter, decorated with parrot feathers. He was hand-fed all of his food by a servant. Absolute life of luxury it was. Just obscene luxury and opulence. Uh, Of course, powered by the massive wealth of of the Inca Empire as well. And this is what Atahualpa thought that he was going to be able to settle down and enjoy after defeating his brother, not just the opulence and the luxury, but also people waiting on your hand and foot and treating you like an actual god. The loyalty, the reverence that people had in the Inca Empire for their Sapa Inca was just incredible. As you'll hear, there, there are some pretty interesting things that came of that loyalty and that devotion later on in the story. Anyway, that's what Atahualpa thinks that he's got uh, you know, coming down the pipeline towards him. But of course, we all know today it wasn't to be, because during the Incan civil war, a new threat to the empire was emerging. Arriving, of course, from across the Atlantic, pushing pushing further across the South South American continent. Here, and I'm talking about, of course, uh, European and in this instance, specifically Spanish uh, expansion into the uh, into the New World. And look, you know, the the Spaniards they'd they'd been in this part of the world for quite some time. You can already hear you know, go back and listen to. Uh, they're involved in the fall of the Aztec Empire, episode 128, get across that. But um, now they're pushing further south this time, and they're doing it from the Pacific this time. In 1531, while Atahualpa was fighting his brother, a Spanish conquistador named Francisco Pizarro landed in modern-day Ecuador and began to uh, began to make his way exploring uh, you know, this part of the world on behalf of Spain. I, I say exploring, it's... Uh, he did a fair bit more than that, as we'll discover as well, because with a small contingent of, uh, of under 200 uh, Spanish soldiers, around 160, 170 of them, about 70 of them on horseback, uh, Pizarro cut about doing what the Spanish conquistadors did best. He was hunting for gold and silver and jewels, but his overall mission was to conquer the Inca Empire. And he couldn't have timed it better if he'd tried, because by the time he and his men had made it to the heartlands of this empire, the Civil War had only just finished. Now, the Incas, they knew about the Spanish. They'd, you know, they'd, they'd, the two factions had sent envoys to each other and there'd been, a, a, you know, a level of diplomatic contact between the two, but it had been very careful and there'd been a level of distance between the two, uh, you know, between the two nations at this point. Uh, but that was about to come to an end here, particularly with the end of the Civil War because of the because of this war, right tens of thousands of Inca soldiers had been killed. the empire was unstable, its people were discontent. Um, and while it was at its territorial apex at around this time, its political situation was extremely tenuous thanks to the fact that the empire had you know been bloody ripping itself to bits with this war. And this was the backdrop against which the Spanish arrived and made formal contact with the Inca Empire at the highest level. Very fortunate timing, you have to say, for Pizarro. Very, very fortunate timing given his objectives to bring, you know, to bring the, the, the empire to its knees here. Because towards the end of, uh, of 1532, having won this war against his brother, Atahualpa, he's taken some time off, man. He's taken some time to, to you know, relax and congratulate himself on the win. He's chilling out. He's hanging out in the modern-day Peruvian highlands, enjoying a, a hot springs up there. Uh, a bit of a holiday for him, you know, being hard at work fighting his brother. And, you know, not just for the bloody Xbox controller, but for an entire empire, which is... More than what most brothers fight over, in my experience. Anyway, he's marinating comfortably in the hot springs. He's, you know, attended by his entourage. And on top of that, there are thousands and thousands of troops with him. When he hears about these Spanish explorers that are cutting about, wanting to make contact with him, and he goes, here we go, boys, I'll tell you what we'll do, Right we'll play these buggers for fools we'll invite them right into our homeland here just in case they're up to no up to no good we'll invite them right into the center of the empire where we've got them where we want them we can control them we can encircle them we can make sure they don't get out, get up to any uh, any silly business because you know they'll be effectively cut off uh, from any any reinforcements, any resupplies, and and we will be able to take uh, you know take control of this situation as as they're playing. We have got the home ground advantage here. People go, mate, great idea. Love this. Uh, let's uh, let, let's organise it. We'll, we'll we'll invite them in. We'll make sure that they get here uh, safely, and, and we'll see what they've got to say for themselves. Now, Atahualpa, he's you know as I say on this holiday, he's getting pisses of chook every day. Um, but his orders to to bring the the Spaniards into the uh, into the Inca heartlands uh, are obeyed, and as, as a result, you know this meeting is set up. Uh, they Atahualpa agrees to meet with the Spaniards and invites them to come in in towards uh, you know where where he is in the uh, in the highlands. There, uh, there's a town Cajamarca, and you, I mean probably based on the title of the episode, you probably already know what's going to happen there. But uh, he invites uh, Pizarro and the rest to come and, uh, to come and meet him there. And now. As we go over and check with Pizarro, this suits him magnificently, absolutely magnificently. Because while Atahualpa doesn't feel very threatened, I mean the Spanish they don't even have, you know, they don't even have two hundred men. And while the civil war, yes, had led to a huge loss of life for the Incas, Atahualpa is still in charge of eighty thousand troops or something. He reckons he's going to be okay. But I'll tell you what, how wrong he was, you'll discover. And Pizarro, very happy to receive this in in uh, this invitation right into the heartlands of the Incan Empire, because he he says to himself, "Listen, we're going to do what Cortez did." We're going to bring them down from within, right? We're going to get right in the middle of them, and we're going to we're going to bring them low with our advanced, uh, you know, military hardware and technologies and whatever else. And uh, we'll be very quickly ruling this empire. Don't you even worry about it. So Pizarro, he travelled to Cajamarca at uh, at the emperor's invitation, getting deep into the Inca heartland, unopposed as a result, and ended up with his small contingent there in Cajamarca, op- occupying some of the buildings. Uh, and uh, and says no worries, you know, you um, whenever you, whenever you blokes are ready to come down and meet us, we're waiting in this town, so we'll just uh, we'll just hang out here and uh, and you can come and have a chat and see what's going on, right? So Atahualpa, he is reasonably confident he's going to you know march into Cajamarca and at the first sign of trouble capture these Spanish visitors, taken prisoner, no worries at all. Got them surrounded, of course. What are they going to do? There's only two hundred of them. He's got you know thousands and thousands of troops at his disposal. So, Atahualpa, he leaves the hot springs, uh, he approaches uh, Cajamarca. he sets up camp outside of town, uh, you know, with this massive entourage in tow. He's got this huge contingent of of, of lords and nobles and servants and soldiers, uh, thousands and thousands in all. Now, once he has set up shop outside the town, there you know as he settled down and he's uh, he, he's getting ready for this meeting. Pizarro sends messengers out to Atahualpa's encampment. He sends out fifteen horsemen and an interpreter to go with them, and uh, attempts to you know officially uh, organize this meeting with them. And Atahualpa he receives the guests. He says, "Yep, no worries. Welcome along, boys. Good to have you." Well, no worries. I'll come into Cajamarca tomorrow. We'll have a chat and we'll, uh, we'll, we'll, you know, see what's going on here. And uh, in the meantime, you know, they share a drink with each other, the the uh, the Incans and the, and the Spanish there, and they watch the they watch the Spaniards trot around on these strange beasts that they've uh, brought with them. Obviously, you know, horses were uh, were had, was something that people never seen in the in the Inca Empire, so they were very interested to see the uh, the horsemanship of the Spanish soldiers that were there as well. But uh, after a bit of this, the Spanish, they, they get back on their horses, they ride back to uh, to Cajamarca, and that's it. The, the meeting is set for the next day. Now, at this point, it's reasonably certain that neither side trusted the other, right? And both sides considered themselves to have a very, very serious upper hand here, right? Because both of them, it seems, were pretty dead set on, on capturing or even killing the other by the end of the day. But... As you'll discover, only one of them actually was able to do this. The Spanish had a couple of very significant advantages in that regard, and we'll talk about it, that exactly exactly what they were in just a second. Anyway, next day, Atahualpa he gets up, he gets ready to head off down to Pizarro, but as he had been doing the last couple of days, he gets some drinks into him before he sets off. Seems like Atahualpa didn't mind getting on the sauce. He chucked back a few as they left, so he's uh, you know he's pissed as a newt as they as they're heading off, and uh, you know he'd been doing this last couple of days, as I say, so he wasn't in the best of nick. He might have been a bit dusty. You know, anyway, he's an enormous procession. It makes its way down into Kahamaka. Uh, apparently, the escort of people, as I say, in the thousands, uh, up to 5,000, or even maybe even more people. The estimates are wildly, wildly all over the place, but 5,000 people seems like a safe enough bet here. But here's the thing. They arrive in the town of Cajamarca. He's surprised to find Aduha, He's looking around he's going, where are these blokes? The Spanish, they don't seem to be there. He's walking around these, you know, twisting, narrow streets, this sizable entourage are all sort of, you know, jostling themselves into the town. They can't see they can't see hide nor hear of these Spanish bastards. don't know where they are, right? Anyway, they make their way to the town, to, you know, the main square, the central plaza in this town. They're puzzled to find the Spanish. aren't there to greet them after all. But once they get to the centre of the town, they finally meet a lone Spanish priest. He's waiting there for them with an interpreter. Now you'll be so surprised to learn that the priest immediately starts going, "Oh, yeah, bloody, you know, welcome along, good to have you, whatever else." Let me tell you about. I got. Let me tell you the good news, and starts bloody talking about cheesy crazy, as Christian priests obviously love to do so very much. But in doing this, right, in giving this 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 speech to uh, to Atahualpa, part of it is, of course. Is a request or perhaps even a demand? There's not a huge amount of consensus as to exactly how this was phrased, but uh, there is a sense that at some point this priest did start bringing up things like paying tribute to the Spanish emperor and obviously submitting to the uh, submitting to the one true faith of the Catholic Church. Now, Atahualpa. He's not a big fan of being told this sort of stuff. He's not a big fan of being, you know, told he's going to have to worship some dead god who'd been nailed up on a tree, or he's going to have to start paying uh, paying tribute to some bloke he's never seen across the other side of the world. Here, and he decides enough is enough. He's not going to take any more nonsense. So he's no no more guff from these Spaniards. He's not. He's had enough of. Uh, he's had a full of what they're here to say. And he says, "No, no, that's enough. We're we're, uh, we're done. I'm, I'm not. I'm not. We're not going to chat with you anymore. I'll never bend the knee." And uh, by the way, right, he says to these Spaniards, I know what you blokes are like. I know you've been nicking gold. I've heard your avarice. You've been stealing all the gold and jewels and gems and whatever else. What you're going to do now, mate, is you're going to give us all them gems, give us all that gold back. You're going to get on them bloody weird animals that you got there, and you're just going to get out of here, and I'm not going to, I don't want to have to deal with you ever again, right? Now, I'm sure you know what's coming next. This did ultimately prove to be a bad move because Pizarro's response was to give his men the order to attack. They had been laying in ambush and they sprang from their hiding places and begin- and they began to absolutely give it to the Incas. Pizarro, he was a bit of a nasty piece of work, it seems, and he had prepared this surprise attack, this ambush for the Sapa Inca. He'd lined up all of his troops, his horses, and most importantly, the artillery that he'd brought with him. He'd brought four small cannons with him and he lined all this up in position to surprise Atahualpa, kill his entourage and take him prisoner. So the horsemen plunged through the crowd of Incas. You know, this is the, this is the first time they'd ever been exposed to a cavalry charge here and they don't know what to do with these. You know, these, these, these warriors standing. However tall they are on the backs of these horses, absolutely terrifying it would have been. And on top of that, the musketeers that are around the town, they start to open fire as well. And then, you know, deadliest of all, The cannons that Pizarro had hidden in the buildings around the town square, they opened fire too. Now, I told you, the Incas, they didn't have iron or steel weapons. Atahualpa's troops, they were armed with stone axes, with spears and slings. They were cut down mercilessly by the Spanish with their metal armor, their steel blades, and of course, these gunpowder weapons that the Incas had never seen before. They call it sometimes the Battle of Cajamarca, but it really wasn't much of a battle, truth be told. It was it was a massacre. It was a total massacre. The Spanish, they fell on the Incas and absolutely butchered the poor bastards. Thousands and thousands of Incas were killed wholesale by the Spanish in Cajamarca, while the Spanish themselves, they lost, would you like to guess, zero men, not a single one. That's how one-sided this so-called battle, this massacre was. The Spanish didn't take a single casualty. Now, why is this? You might look at this and go, this is absolutely impossible. How can how can a group of 160, 170 uh, Spanish soldiers defeat an army of 5,000 or more? Well, there are a couple of reasons here, and it's not just about the mismatch in weaponry technology either, although that certainly did come into it, you know, bringing a stone axe or a sling to a gunfight or a bloody cannon fight is never going to set you in good stead. But it wasn't just what the sides were fighting with, it's also how they were fighting. For the Incas... Warfare and, and military con- conflict in general, this was a very ritualized affair. Battles were organized, they were orderly, they were clearly understood by both sides. And, and there was a, a level of process to them, I guess, that you know the Incas were very used to. Using underhanded and sneaky tactics like an ambush, Just it just wasn't part of the culture of Incan warfare. And so Atahualpa and his soldiers were completely unprepared, caught completely unawares all the, the, the tricks and the traps and the, and the feints and the, fault, the, the falsehoods, all the, all the subterfuge that goes into modern war just didn't factor in. in it didn't factor into the ways that Inca, the Incas did battle. And so they're at a total loss when the Spanish you know start to deploy deceitful tactics like this, waiting in ambush and, and with a surprise attack was just something the Incas wouldn't, wouldn't even conceive of to begin with, because again, it wasn't part of their culture of war. On top of this, the Incas did have the advantage of numbers. Of course, you remember earlier that that was one of the one of the advantages they usually relied upon while fighting. They did have, you know, they they outnumbered uh, the Spanish troops by by an order of magnitude or more. But most Incan warriors weren't super well trained. They weren't highly disciplined, um, and their their commanding officers, you know, had to be there to instill order and purpose as they fought, or they would break and, and rout very quickly. And that's exactly what happened here. They're caught, they're caught completely by surprise. The Incas are unable to respond. The lords and the nobles who would be leading, uh, you know, leading their troops into battle weren't there to try to rally them. And, you know, as a result, all these troops, they panicked. They were cut down and, and they fled. So a perfect situation for the Spanish. They've got highly trained, disciplined, well-armored and, and, and armed troops lying in ambush. Against you know these warriors who couldn't respond properly when surprised, whose armaments are sorely bloody outmatched, and who could and did break very quickly. But the most important reason I think behind the the Incas not really giving up a not really you know giving a fight to the Spanish here at this point was because of the lightning quick capture of Atahualpa himself. Pizarro and his men, right as soon as the attack began, Pizarro and his men they came up to the litter that Atahualpa was being carried on, and they attempted to take him prisoner straight away, immediately. That was that was what they, that was their number one priority there. But the people carrying the litter didn't didn't run in the face of these Spanish horsemen like so many of the others did. They 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 stood firm, and even when Pizarro and some of his soldiers were you know attacked them furiously and and in some case hewed off their limbs. Atahualpa's attendants still did everything they could to protect the emperor with the, you know, with the, with the arm they had remaining or with the, you know, the bloodied stumps of limbs that had, been, uh, that had been hacked off. They attempted to bodily protect their emperor right, right up until they were killed. But once his attendants were dead, nothing prevented Pizarro from taking Atahualpa uh, as his prisoner. And when the Incas realized that their leader had been captured, they broke and they fled immediately. Many of the troops that were with Atahualpa had fought in the civil war. They weren't str- they weren't a stranger to battle. But the combination of unfamiliar and very very, you know, over- terrifying military technology like forged steel horses and gunpowder along with the surprise of the ambush and the loss of the Sapa Inca, well, this is all too much of course and they broke. They routed and they were killed in there thousands as this group of 170 or so Spaniards cut them down. Not a single one of them attempted to turn and fight the Spanish. The battle or really the, the massacre of Cajamarca was uh, more than you might think from, you know, the, the I guess its brevity and, and and the way that it panned out. It was a, a huge turning point in the history of not just the Inca Empire, but of course the, the region and, and I guess the globe when you look at some of the knock-on effects and the consequences that it had. Because for all intents and purposes, this was effectively the point at which the Inca Empire fell, as you'll see. The Spanish, they went on, you know, in in the short term, immediately after this massacre, to, to loot and pillage Atahualpa's encampment. They took all the gold and the silver and the jewels that the Inca had brought with them, while Atahualpa and the others that were taken prisoner were all locked up. But in the aftermath of this battle, from a, a, from a broader perspective, the Inca Empire was now without its leader. Atahualpa, was, was a prisoner of the Spanish, but he continued to rule his empire from behind bars and hoping, hoping to leverage the avarice of the invading Spaniards. He knew that a soft spot for gold. Atahualpa uh, attempted to negotiate a ransom in exchange for his life. He offered the Spanish a ridiculous amount of gold, truly, truly ridiculous amount of gold. How much, you might ask? Well, he indicated a room, right, that was uh, five metres wide, just over six meters deep and two and a half meters tall, and he said that he would fill that room with gold once over, and with silver twice. Such was the staggering wealth of the Inca Empire. This was how much uh, that Atahualpa was was willing to part with, you know, for for in bargaining with his own life. And and conservative estimates of of, of that amount of silver and gold put it put they puts it at being at worth around. 50 million U.S. dollars, so, you know, a lot more than a king's ransom, a, a literal actual emperor's ransom here. And, uh, of course, Bizarro agreed. I mean, you can imagine the bloody dollar signs in his eyes as he did so. And so, Atahualpa, he continued to rule from his imprisonment, and he, and he ordered all of this gold, all of this silver to be gathered and to paid over to the Spanish, a process that, of course, took months and months just from a logistical standpoint. But all the medals were found. They were duly handed over. But this wasn't the only thing that Atahualpa did while still in prison. I mean, he was still issuing orders. He was still attempting to govern his realm. And, you know, the, the Spanish even commented on how amazed they were by the, the loyalty and, and the and the devotion that, uh, the you know, his, his subjects still had from even though he was, he'd was he been captured and was disgraced being held in the Spanish prison. People still came to him and kissed his feet and looked after him and did all the rest of it there like that. And they also uh, followed one of the other orders that he gave while he was locked up, which was the murder <laughs> Of his brother, uh, Atahualpa uh, insisted that his brother Huascar, who had lost the civil war, remember uh, and and was still a prisoner of Atahualpa's, uh, he ordered he be executed. Now, why you might be wondering why? Well, I mean, think about it. He's just gone and fought a civil war against this bloke. He doesn't want him somehow emerging as 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 the restored emperor emperor of the Inca Empire. No, I mean, he was worried that maybe the Spanish would free or ransom him and install him as a puppet uh, as a puppet emperor, or maybe you know. People would rally to him as as a leader instead of uh, of, of Atahualpa himself, and so he did order for Huasca to be uh, to be killed, and killed he was. That's that taken care of at least. Not going to be losing his empire to his brother again. But uh, uh, I guess it didn't help him out too much killing Huasca because uh, after a few months, when the ransom that it was agreed upon had been paid in full. Uh, Pizarro now had to make a decision about what he was going to do with his prisoner. Now, in the meantime, Pizarro had used this this period to secret further reinforcements, improve his position, shoring up the control that he had as the emperor's jailer. But once the, once the ransom was paid, as I say, Pizarro had to act. The Incan army, army had also regrouped. Generals that were loyal to Atahualpa were threatening to attack at any time here. So what did Pizarro do? Well, with the ransom paid, he had to spare Atahualpa's life. There is still debate as to whether the ransom was agreed to have bought Atahualpa's freedom or just his life. Uh, but either way, now that it was paid, Pizarro had to act, and he had to, you know, figure out what he was going to do with this bloke. So what did he do? Well, with the agreement made, with the gold passed over, and, and everything else, you'll never guess. Pizarro took Atahualpa out, uh, put him from, took him out of prison, and he put him on trial. Of course, Atahualpa was put on trial for idolatry, rebelling against the Spanish, and hilariously, the murder of his brother Huascar. Pretty interesting charges, all of them. Very presumptuous of the Spanish to charge an emperor with rebelling against them, the Spanish, in his very empire, you know, that he himself owned. But that is what happened there. Now, obviously, of course, the whole thing was... One big, bloody kangaroo caught it lacked anything in the way of legitimacy. Um, but of course, Atahualpa, he was found guilty. He was condemned to death. and uh, as he wasn't a Christian, as he was a heretic, the sentence was to be carried out by burning at the stake. And this was a terrible outcome for Atahualpa. I mean, look, I, 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 sorry, being burnt alive is a terrible outcome for anyone. It's I mean, obviously it's not a great outcome no matter who you are or, or, or what you believe in, but a particularly bad. For the Inca, because they believed that being burnt prevented you from getting to the afterlife. So, as a way out of this, as a way out of being burnt alive at the stake here, Atahualpa was offered the chance to convert to Catholicism, right? Which he did. He was baptized and he was given the name Francisco, named after Pizarro himself, which is a bit of a bloody slap in the face, I reckon. And then, you know, now that he has accepted the, the love and the mercy of Jesus Christ, his Lord and Savior, accepted that into his heart and soul, now that he stood, you know, with his other Catholics, baptized and and, and all the rest of it, then what do you think happened to him? Well, it was then that Pizarro killed him anyway. Of course. I mean, obviously, <laughs> would have been nice. You know, we, maybe you're expecting some of that, fam- that famous Christian forgiveness there, but oh no, Pizarro wasn't turning the other cheek, mate. No, 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 not at all. Instead of being burnt alive... Atahualpa was instead strangled to death with a garrote, and his death really did mark the end of the Inca Empire as an independent realm. There were other Sapa Incas after Atahualpa. His brother Tupac Hualpa was uh, installed on, th- on the throne by the Spanish. He died after a few months, and uh, his another brother was installed after that, Manco Inca. But all of these rulers and the ones that came after them, they were very little more than, than just puppets. They were figureheads, really, for the Spanish uh, because, I mean, Manco was actually crowned by Pizarro and he was so poorly treated by his new Spanish overlords that he actually uh, he attempted to escape from them uh, and, and, and from his position as emperor on, on multiple occasions. So, you know, never mind all the rich clothing and the jewelry and the golden cups, it wasn't that much of a sweet deal anymore being the supper Inca as, uh, you know, as, uh, vassalized as they were to the Spanish Empire. And uh, in the wake of Atahualpa's death in the years that followed Pizarro and the Spanish, they continued their conquest of the Inca Empire even after Pizarro died in 1541. The, the, con- the conquest continued until the empire was finally all but wiped out in 1572, 40 years after the death of Atahualpa there. Pizarro, who, again, really does seem to have been a nasty piece of work. He was he, he was dressed down by Charles V for, for executing another, another, another monarch, the uh, the Emperor of Spain. Um, but uh, he also ended up taking one of Atahualpa's wives as a mistress, and uh, on top of that, slept with one of his sisters. Now, <laughs> interestingly, that sister that he slept with uh, gave daughter gave birth to a daughter, right, whose name was Inez. Inez went on to marry Pizarro's brother, who was her uncle. So, all very confusing here. But some of Inez's descendants who you know, uh, now have the blood of both Pizarro and Atahualpa in their veins, went on in future generations to lead various Latin American nations, such as Bolivia, such as the Dominican Republic, Inez's descendants, such as uh, Dominican President José Desidero Valverde, or even in the 20th century Bolivian President uh, José Guterres Guerra, right, these all had, these blokes, they all had royal Incan bloods, blood in their veins, in addition to the blood of the Spanish conquistadors who had come and brought them low. Although it doesn't look like, you know, they slept with their sisters as their ancestors might have done. Anyway, despite being huge and, and rich and powerful, very powerful, the Inca empire, it collapsed very quickly. Just 40 years after the death of Atahualpa, the last free Sapa Inca, the, 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 the entire empire really was no more. Without the rigid strength of the central Inca government, the various regions of the empire, they fell apart and they were conquered piecemeal by the Spanish and, and, and the, the local allies that they made there, who, of course, I mean, they had a lot of advantages. It wasn't just their weaponry, their technology, but also the very fortunate timing of their invasion, with Pizarro arriving in the midst of this devastating civil war. But perhaps more than anything else, really. It was the diseases that the Europeans brought with them that utterly devastated the Inca Empire and, and led them to be largely powerless to resist the slow march of, of, of Spanish conquest. And these diseases were what brought the realm to its knees and enabled the conquest so readily. Whatever the case may be and you know, from all the advantages that the Spanish had in, in, in invading and, and taking over this part of the world, the Spanish ultimately did remove the Inca Empire from the face of the earth. They founded cities like Lima. They forced the populations of uh, of the Inca Empire and so many other places to submit and convert and ultimately caused the death in in the conquest of, uh, of the Inca Empire. They caused the death of over 7 million Andean people thanks to diseases like typhus and smallpox. And, of course, we can never know what may have happened if things had gone differently. It's very difficult to say Exactly how, how it might have panned out if it didn't go the way that it did. But it's safe to say that ultimately the conquest of the Inca Empire, the downfall of this mighty and, and proud and powerful and, and very wealthy civilization, it all came about because of the massacre of Cajamarca and the capture and then execution of Atahualpa. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of Atahualpa. That is the story of the massacre of Cajamarca, and of course, a uh, a very important event in, uh, in in not just you know the the regional history of South America, and more specifically in nations like Peru and Ecuador and uh, and uh, and Chile, Bolivia, Argentina, the rest of them, but also from a global perspective in terms of. You know the Spanish, uh, uh, the Spanish encroachment into South America, and the, uh, the the state of the world that we live in today, with uh, with South America being colonized by the Spanish, and 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 all the things that happened there. This was a this was a massive. A massive point in in that entire story so i do hope you learned a thing or two from this episode not the not the happiest or the funniest or the silliest episode but still a story that's well worth getting across i think so i do hope you got something out of it uh, but thanks for listening all the same uh, it's been great to have your company of course this episode of half fast history and uh closing out the show as usual with all the boring housekeeping stuff now net is the website uh there's a contact form there if you want to get in touch with the show of course if you want to send me any feedback or, or topic suggestions i do get a lot of emails so i'm i'm, I'm sorry I don't. Uh, Uh, I apologize for not replying to them. I do read, obviously, every single one of them. Um, If you want to support the show on Patreon, you're certainly welcome to do that. Patreon.com slash Half Us History. Thank you to all the people who are doing so. You can get access to uh, all sorts of bonus content there if you'd like. Um, And what else? I think that's it. I don't know. I've forgotten. If there's anything else, I don't know. Just go back to a couple of other episodes and listen to the... The the housekeeping stuff's the same every week, isn't it? So nothing new here. Anyway, there's that. Thanks for tuning in. Leaving, of course, the question posed on Reddit here. This one... um, I mean, to do with the Incan Empire, we've been talking about the Incan Empire, so obviously we're going to talk about, obviously the question to do with it here comes to us from Wheeljack Frosty Dick on Reddit, which is quite a name. Uh, Wheeljack Frosty Dick asks, How on earth did they get the whole Incan Empire into a small metal container without the necessary technological advances in metallurgy?